Welcome to the Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman, and we had been talking for weeks on this podcast about when is the chaos going to come in college football, and it finally did on Saturday. Number two, number three, and number four all lose in one day, but Bruce, do you find that after all that, not much has changed? Yeah, Stu, I was going to ask you, what was the biggest impact game of that bunch, of of the whole weekend? Was there one to you? I would say that the two that seemed to end up not affecting those teams were Clemson and Michigan losing, even though Michigan was clearly the, well, those two were bigger upsets, right? This is what's so strange. Just using the Vegas lines, those two games were, I believe, both 20-something point spreads. So those were huge upsets, and yet... I believe, and I think you'll agree, that Clemson and Michigan win out, win their conferences, they're going to the playoff. The one that seems to hurt the most is Washington, even though that was against a ranked opponent that a lot of people think is obviously a lot better than it was, than, than even its ranking reflected at the time. But I feel like it has hurt Washington a little bit more because they were on the shakiest ground to begin with. I would agree with that. I thought they had the least margin for error. You know, they, not only that, they lost at home. I think that, that is going to be tougher to overcome. And I think the, the, the credibility of the Pac-12 this year is in question, whereas you look at the Big Ten, I mean, I have four teams in my top seven that are from the Big Ten. I would think most people probably have four at least in the top ten, and Michigan's going to go on the road to a top three team in Ohio State. So that would certainly give them a chance to boost their credibility even more, as whereas Clemson, the Clemson-Louisville dynamic is pretty interesting to me. Uh, where did you rank Clemson? Where did you rank Louisville this weekend? Well, I have Louisville higher. I have Louisville th- or third. I have Clemson seventh. And that's me because I feel like Clemson has gotten worse since that Louisville game. And I've been fortunate to remain undefeated uh, to the point that they did. But I'm not the selection committee, and I understand that they take much more of a resume approach and head-to-head. So I do not – I feel like Clemson is basically boxing Louisville out of this thing right now. How did you do it? I had Clemson ahead of Louisville, and here's my thing on this. Now, granted, I think that Houston's unranked right now, but Louisville's going to play them on Thursday night. But if if Clemson wins out – they would win the ACC. They would have won head-to-head. They would have one more victory. I don't see how Louisville would go ahead of them, especially when, keep in mind, after they lost to Clemson, here are the teams they beat. They beat Duke. Duke is 4-6. and six. They beat NC State. They are 5-5. Five and five. They had their hands full, barely beat Virginia, who's 2-8. and eight. Uh, And then they won at BC, who's 4-6 and six and terrible. They, they blew out Wake Forest after struggling, but Wake Forest is 6-4. and four. Wake Forest may be the best team of the bunch. I don't know. You know, I know what you're saying about Clemson. doesn't look like they, they've gotten any better since that game. Um, I just think it's, a tough, I think it's a tough sell to put Louisville ahead of them when they lost the head-to-head. Oh, for sure. I, I understand it, you know, and, you know, the sport has changed. In the playoff era, we're talking much more broadly about team seasons, and so – when Clemson lost, at, before we knew that there were going to be two more of these upsets, and Twitter's going crazy, and people are asking me, you know, how far do they fall? And I, at that point, I looked at it, and I said, kind of what we're talking about. Well, they can't really fall further than fifth, because Louisville was sixth, and they're boxed out. You know, they're not going to pass, Louisville's not going to pass Clemson, especially a week after they said they kept A&M ahead of Auburn because of head-to-head. So... That's what I said, and people were furious. What are you talking about? They lost an awful Pitt team. And by the way, Pitt's not awful, but you know how it is on Twitter. Uh, At home, they need to plummet. And I think that's living back in the BCS days where, yeah, it didn't seem to matter. It was very week to week. You lose, you drop six spots. So when you look at this, it's like, yeah, they need to plummet, but who are you going to stick it over them? Well, that was, I don't think people grasped that yet at that point in the day that, like I just said, like the two teams... If, if, if at that point you assumed Michigan and Washington were going to win and you moved them behind those teams, you moved them behind Ohio State, there was still this, 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 then this buffer of like, well, I don't think they're going to fall below Louisville because the head-to-head, and I don't think they're going to fall below any of the teams behind that because they all had two losses. And so basically, 
it just spoke to how they how much those undefeated teams had separated themselves in the first place that I mean it's possible these rankings will come out Tuesday and Michigan will not have moved. They were number three last week and they may still be number three uh, because you know I could see uh, Clemson falling below Michigan uh, because they had a home loss as opposed to a road loss. But that's, you know, who else? Who else would be ahead of Michigan besides Alabama and Ohio State? Michigan crushed Penn State. They have a nice win over Colorado. They did beat Wisconsin. It's not like they don't have a resume of note. I mean, you know, it's funny. When I was doing my list yesterday morning on the flight home, I had just seen West Virginia win at Texas. That's not a bad win. I mean, Texas isn't a very isn't a great team, but it's not a bad win. And... I'm thinking, you know what, they've only lost once. They had a game where they had a bunch of turnovers, lost at Oklahoma State. That's not an embarrassing place to lose. But then you start looking at their resume, and I was like, can I put them six? Can I put them seven? You know, I think think they've done a great job of coaching, considering they're really banged up and they're still playing well. Um, But you look at it, at their resume, they beat BYU, who I think is is pretty good. They barely beat K-State. They whooped Texas Tech. Uh, at Texas Tech. Now, they did beat TCU, who I know you think is pretty good, but it's not, uh, you know, it's just you look. That was, a, a, for example, I, I think there's just, it's, it's hard to find teams that you think could make a case to be really in the top five at this point. I have Penn State six, Stu, which is probably higher than some people, but do they have one of the best wins of the season because they beat Ohio State? So, yeah, all of those Big 12 teams are suffering from the same thing. West Virginia does not have a single top 25 win yet, nor does Oklahoma. Now they will play each other this week, and one of them will get one. And then Oklahoma State does have one uh, top 25 win, and that's West Virginia. So that's why they're kind of off on an island right now. You asked me right off the top what was the biggest development of all this, and I actually think the answer is the bizarre effect that Michigan's loss to Iowa is having on Ohio State, where <laughs> you would think they would be going crazy right now with excitement that their arch rival lost, and instead it's put them in this weird predicament where it's really a no-win situation for them. If they obviously if they lose to Michigan, they're out of the playoff. If they beat Michigan, I think they'll be okay, but they won't go to the Big Ten title game unless Penn State loses to Michigan State or Rutgers, which seems unlikely. So it's just this really bizarre situation where they're going to be the number two team in the country. I think we can agree on that. And you talk about resumes, wins at Oklahoma, at Wisconsin, Nebraska at home. And then if we project it forward and we say they beat Michigan, you know that's going to be three top 10 wins and a fourth top 25 win. And the only loss was to another team. You just said you have sixth on the road. So that's a heck of a resume. And it's probably going to be missing a conference championship, which we've to this point, felt was, you know, close to close to a requirement to reach the playoffs. So um, what do you think? Do you think they would get left out for not winning their conference, or is the resume just too good? I think if Ohio State wins out and ends up at 11-1 with a win over what could be a Big 12 uh, champ in Oklahoma and beat them decisively on the road, and they basically lost, you know, in the last second to – to Penn State, I don't, if they go 11-1, and one, I couldn't see four teams that I, you could put ahead of them. I really couldn't. I'm sorry. There will be a – right now that Washington lost, if Washington or whoever wins the Pac-12, I could not see them being ranked ahead of, of, uh, of Ohio State. If, if, you know, and I don't know how this would, if this really lines up, but if West Virginia, which has never beaten – Oklahoma since they've been in the Big 12. West Virginia wins that game this weekend and wins out, and they would be 11-1 and in a, in a uh, Big 12 champ and would also own a victory over Oklahoma. I don't know. I, still, I mean, just the fact that they're a conference title, they wouldn't have the 13th data point. I still think Ohio State would be ranked ahead of them. Um, I wouldn't put Louisville ahead of Ohio State either. So where are these other teams that are going to go ahead of them? And look, there's going to be more upsets. We, we, we promised there were going to be some. There's going to be more. But we will, for the purposes of this conversation, just basically say that everybody holds serve. Alabama will be one team. Clemson will be another. You know, I mean, Washington as a 12-1 Pac-12 champ, I don't think will necessarily be guaranteed to finish ahead of Ohio State. Um, 
Louisville, I don't think would because they wouldn't have a championship either. I mean, I think they're in. And and this is exactly why this was set up the way it was. You know, I know there are a lot of people. This will be controversial if that happens. And I know there are a lot of people who are very adamant that it should only be conference champs. If you can't win your conference, why should you be in the playoff? And But this is why it was set up the way it was, to have that wiggle room. Because forget the numbers. If we get to that point where they're 11-1, and one, everybody will subjectively say, not only are they one of the four best teams, that, nobody, that they, they have the best shot to beat Alabama. So you have to have them in the playoff if you think they're that good. Or else, what's the point of the playoff if you're not going to pick the four best teams? Yeah, I'm with you. I, I think it's going to be very interesting. I'm curious to see how the committee ranks it, and I'm curious to see what happens in the next couple of weeks as this this kind of unfolds. How high do you have Penn State, by the way? Uh, I have Penn State eighth. Uh, basically, my order, um, Alabama, Ohio State, Louisville, Michigan, Clemson, Wisconsin, Washington. I kept Washington ahead of Penn State. I take it you did not. I did not. No, I have Washington at nine. I'm sorry, I have Washington eight at eight above, and I have West Virginia at nine. Well, let me think about this for a second. I mean, Washington has, to this point, just one top 25 win at Utah. I think Stanford is trending to where they're going to be back in it at some point. They're seven and three with games remaining against Cal and Rice, so they're probably going to finish nine and three. But one top 25 win to this point. Penn State has one top 25 win to this point. But Penn State has two losses. So that's why I kept Washington ahead of Penn State. Way better win, though, than anything Washington has. Right. No, no question about that. Also, Washington has more chances down the stretch here. I mean, to add to their resume, they're going to play a Washington State team that's ranked and, frankly, is ranked too low, in my opinion, at least in the AP and coaches polls. And then they make the Pac-12 title game. They would play a ranked team from the South. So they do have chances to add to their resume. But I want to ask you this about the Ohio State situation. All right, if we agree they're going to be in, if Wisconsin beats um, Penn State in the title game, I think you're going to have two Big Ten teams because I, I, they'd have such a good resume too. I think they'd be one of the four. Or the Penn State wins the Big Ten title game. That's the one I'm really struggling with. You know, we don't we don't know. They've never dealt with a situation like this. But here you'd have a team that won the Big Ten, and that what's the first checkbox? Conference championship. Why would it be different with them being eleven and two versus Wisconsin being eleven and two? Because of resume, Wisconsin beat LSU. Um, they beat Nebraska. This would be a third top 25 win. Penn State beat Ohio State. But that's it. That's all they've done to this point in the season. So to you, thinking it's clear, Penn State wins the Big Ten, Penn State's in. I, let me say this. I don't think that is happening. But if they win and go 11-2 and two and have a win over Ohio State, who I think is a playoff team if they had beaten Michigan and went out, yes, I would think. Because Wisconsin's a good team. That would give them what I think would be two top eight wins yeah you may be right um i guess the question would be would they get in ahead of ohio state because of the head-to-head or would would ohio state be two and penn state would be four something like that i think it's probably it would look that way something like that it's a weird quirk and, and what it is and again this is why i was always in favor of not restricting it to conference champs how much is your thought process here is on talent it's really not um it's not, other than that's one of the reasons I, I feel Ohio State, if they win out, would be one of the fours, that you, you just kind of feel like they're the most talented team other than Alabama. But are you saying, am I holding it against Penn State? Yes, that most people don't know anything about Trace McSorley. They, yeah, they give credit to Saquon Barkley. No, it's really a matter of, you know, having gone through this twice, and granted, they keep rewriting their own rules, but... At the end of the year, when it got to the four, they always talked about top 25 wins. Uh, every team to this point has had at least three, if not four. By the way, they could have potentially a third top 25 win. Uh, they did meet Minnesota. I don't think Minnesota's all that good, but they're seven and three. They didn't crack it last week at seven and two, and then they lost. So it doesn't seem like it's very optimistic for them. But I guess if they went nine and three, they probably would. So you're right about that. Um, and you got two losses. It's a win over Iowa, who just beat Michigan. With the lopsided nature of their, I mean, they lost to Michigan forty-eight to ten. Would that bother you? Uh, yeah, I mean that's that's the thing that's definitely holding them back. They have a blowout loss on the road. I mean, look, they did beat Temple. Temple has a chance to finish in the top twenty-five. If they, you know, I think they'll win the last two games. They would get to nine and three. They could win their conference championship. 
Yeah, I mean, all of that tilts toward a Big Ten champ, Penn State, and you know who it tilts against is the Pac-12 champ. And, and now it'll be a much easier decision if one of the two lost Pac-12 teams wins it, and they're going up against Penn State. But if it's 12-1 and Washington against 11-2 and Penn State, uh, I don't think that's as clear-cut. What I wanted to say before was, in the basketball committee situation, we often talk about the imbalanced schedules, where you could have two teams in the ACC and one played a much tougher schedule than conference schedule than the other, and that's why they don't necessarily rigidly adhere to conference standings. Now, granted, they're putting eight teams from a conference in, uh, so you're talking more about seeding than actually putting a team in it. But that's what's happening here. 14-team Big Ten. They play three crossover teams from the other division. Ohio State happened to draw the two best teams in the other division, Wisconsin and Nebraska, and beat them both. Penn State drew Purdue, Iowa, and Minnesota from the other division. So A, they haven't had the chances to add those you know, quality wins. And B, if Penn State had drawn that schedule, do you think they would still be winning the Big Ten East? I don't. I don't know. I mean, Iowa and Minnesota versus – I think – Again, I think we're we're at odds over Nebraska. I don't think Nebraska is very good. What's your definition of very good? Because they're eight and two. Yeah, uh, who have they beaten? Who you think is very good? I think they just had their best win actually by beating that Minnesota team that you talked about. So the best win. I mean, they lost by three points to Ohio State still. But what are you going to do at this point in the season when they played all these teams have played ten games and they're eight and two? You want to leave them out of the top twenty-five? Tyler, they're only twentieth. I, I, my point is, I'm not sure I would give them. I, I would like prop that win up. I think it's. I think there's a gap between them and Wisconsin. Okay. Well, do you know who the third Big Ten West team was that Ohio State played? It was Northwestern. Northwestern is tied in the standings with Iowa. They don't even have a winning record. They are, and but I'm saying Penn State's best draw from the other division was probably. Well, I guess it's, it's, Minnesota, it's Minnesota or it's Iowa. Iowa. It's Iowa. Well, Iowa and, and Northwestern beat Iowa, and they're tied in the Big Ten standings. So it's a very imbalanced, you know, on the one hand, Penn State would win the division and go to the championship game, and and I just don't know that the public would make this distinction, but I think the committee would. I think they would look a little bit deeper about how did you, what schedule did you play to be able to win the division? Yeah, look, I mean, I'm not going to fault them either for scheduling in the non-conference. Temple, who's been pretty good, and Pitt, who just won at Clemson and is, is not, a, not a cupcake either. So let's just say for hypothetical that they both make it. Ohio, So it's Alabama's one, uh, Ohio State's two, Clemson's three, and Penn State's four. Are you okay with that at the expense of the Pac-12? Then you'd have no Big 12 and no Pac-12. Yeah, I mean... I think it would be a tough argument for Washington. I don't know. I hate to say it like this, but I would like to see it at the end and see where we're at with Washington. You know, if they win in Pullman, that would be a solid win. If they beat, you know, Utah, I think Utah is pretty good. I mean, I just saw Utah. I think they're quite good. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think it's tough having these conversations right after the teams lose because then everybody thinks they're garbage. <laughs> and And you're not taking the bigger picture view. Like, for instance... Do you attribute Washington's loss to USC? Do you look at that more as USC is a lot better than their record and they showed it or that it somehow exposed Washington? Well, I think also Washington is down their best pass rusher for the rest of the year, Joe Mathis. I think that hurt. Now, look, I don't think USC has that good of a defense, but they gave Jake Browning a lot of problems. Jake Browning has now had his two worst games in the Utah win, which is their best win, and the USC loss. Um, I kept him fifth on my Heisman ballot, and I kind of regretted that after the fact. I mean, part of me felt like the reason I did that was, you know, he's had such a great season to this point. You know, try not to get too hung up on this one game. But then after the fact, I realized, well, he didn't play that great against Utah either. How does it rank for you, two, three, four, five? I thought about not having a two because that's how big the gap is. Uh, I went Baker Mayfield, Jalen Hurts, Donnell Pumphrey, and Browning. I really strongly considered... Uh, Luke Falk, JT Barrett, and Curtis Samuel for that fifth spot. Okay, so I don't, I didn't have any one of those three guys. My number two guy is Deontay Foreman. You keep seeing him in person, so you know you, you know. Uh, so I had him too. Um, you know when I, the thing is, Sue, when I was like looking at it, I mean he's averaging almost 200 yards a game against ranked opponents. It's not just like a guy who is running over you know, bad, bad teams, but he's played against, 
you know, West Virginia has a very good defense. Not only that, he had a bunch of, you know, receiving yards in the game. I think he's put that program on his back. So I had him, too. Uh, I have D.D. Westbrook, number three. Yeah, I, I, that's a good move. Baker Mayfield is really good, but D.D. Westbrook changed the Oklahoma team when he got healthy. He was, he was slowed by a hamstring pull the first month. Since then, the last seven games, he's averaging almost 200 receiving yards a game and two touchdown receptions a game. I mean, he's just been a difference maker for them. Number four, um, and I'm surprised you didn't consider this guy, Sam Darnold. That's a tough one, right? Because this came up with Fournette, too. You don't seem to have as big a problem with guys not playing a third of the season because he didn't become the starter until week four. Yeah, and he, I mean, he changed them dramatically. I mean, still, uh, he's still putting up numbers, 22 touchdowns, only six picks, 68% of his passes, and he's very good at extending plays. And my number five guy is Jalen Hurts. Um, I'm still not sure he's... He's the most important player on the Alabama team. I don't think he's the best one, but I can't really find fault with that. I, I think that I think you're going to find that the spots outside Lamar Jackson are just very fluid right up until the end because I don't. I hate to say they're not great players. They are great players, but they're not. None of those guys that we either of us listed have like a no brainer case to be in there. And, and a perfect example of that is I have Baker Mayfield because he's the number one rated passer in the country. You don't have him in there, but you have his receiver in there. And I can't really argue against that either. Uh, I just think those spots will continue to fluctuate. And I also think, and I wrote this Monday, and tell me if you agree, if Lamar Jackson goes out and has a big game Thursday night against Houston, a game that I think a lot of people are going to be watching, is that it? Is it over? Pretty much. I mean, I think he's run away with the thing. I mean, I I hope the Heisman people don't do this because I think there's a lot of good stories in college football. But, you know, this could be a year where they could only invite one guy you know, to the Heisman, you know, uh, short of somebody saying, you know what, I love James Conner and I love his story or somebody doing something like that, where it becomes, you know, bigger than football. I can't imagine a lot of people would look at it and go, yeah, I'm going to have this guy number one and Lamar Jackson number three. It's not like the baseball hall of fame where somebody wants to make sure the guy's not unanimous. I don't think people do that necessarily. And they're not going to be unanimous with 900 something votes, but it's. Uh, I think you're. You're more. The more likely scenario than what you just suggested is. I mean, there are voters in the South who are going to put an SEC player number one, no matter what. There are players, voters in the West, who are going to put a Pac-12 player one number one, no matter what. Um, I was on the Big Ten Network last week, and Jerry Donardo, who we both, he's been on here, we have a lot of respect for, said that he, the way he approaches it, is he figures out who the best Big Ten player is first. That's who he starts with. And then he goes out and sees if there's anybody from the rest of the country that could beat that person. So everybody approaches this a little bit differently. You and I cover the sport nationally. The overwhelming number of people who are voting on this spend their Saturdays watching a specific team or a specific conference, and maybe they haven't even really gotten to see Lamar Jackson play that much. Now, what happens if he loses Thursday night? Which, by the way, is a completely plausible scenario. If he loses and throws six picks, then the Heisman race opens up. If he loses and throws, you know, three touchdowns, three interceptions, runs for 80 yards, I still think he's the leader. He's got that big of a lead to me. I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think the Heisman is very much about flavor of the month, flavor of the week. And, I mean, if it's like Clemson game where he has a huge game but they lose, that's different. But if he ha- if they lose because he has a bad game, everybody's going to go, oh, now it's Jalen Hurts, now it's JT Barrett. Everybody's going to jump right off that bandwagon. Now, it's too, you don't even have my number two guy on your ballot or even on your top seven or eight, it sounded like. Who was your number two guy? No, I should have mentioned him before. He was definitely the, the first one off. Uh, Who's your number two guy right now? Mayfield. Baker Mayfield? Yeah. I don't feel good about that. He's had a fantastic season. It doesn't bother you that A, his team is 5-5, five and five, or B, and you were at the game the other night, Texas couldn't, Texas scored, what, seven points in the second half? That's correct. I don't know. Something kind of gave me pause there. I mean, he had 100, 170 rushing, 30 receiving. Now, you could ding him for the fumble. But, I mean, remember, this is a guy who plays on a team that has, that's the youngest team in college football that starts a true freshman quarterback. Um, like I said, he's averaging over, uh, over 180 yards on the ground against ranked opponents. They've played a bunch of them. I mean, he deserves to go to New York. I'm not saying I would put him over, over – uh, Lamar Jackson. That's why I think Lamar Jackson is comfortably at number one. But 
you know, to me, he's got as good a case as anybody. It's not his fault that the rest is, you know, Texas team isn't that good. You may be right. Look, I did that ballot. I could have started over from scratch and put four completely different players in there. That's how fl- uh, fluid it is. It reminds me of uh, a few years ago when John. It's actually almost identical to the year that Jameis Winston was so far above everybody else that it was then like, all right, who do we fill it out with? And I think that's how. I think AJ McCarron was number two, which I was like, that's ridiculous. Uh, Jordan Lynch was there. Was that Andre Williams? Andre Williams, maybe. Uh, yep. BC. It kind of felt like the rest of it was kind of just filling out the field. So if Lamar Jackson wins Thursday night, and as long as he does that, if you've watched Kentucky's defense, the amount of yards he's going to put up against them in the last game, that's why I suggested that the race could be over on Thursday night. Well, that'll be must-see TV then after all. It's also must-see TV because it's if everybody's going to go after Tom Herman – then I would it would behoove him to win this game on Thursday night. He's already knocked off Oklahoma. What if he knocks off Oklahoma and Louisville in the same season? Yeah, and it would still be for a lot of people a disappointing season. Uh, a disappointing season in terms of they're not going to win their conference. They're not even going to win their division. It looks like Navy will, but I mean that would be a season in which a group of five team beat two top ten teams from the power conferences. Yeah. Okay. So let me ask you percentage wise. I'm going to give you four schools. You tell me where you think, what the percentage are that Tom Herman is there. Uh, percentage that he is head coach University of Houston in 2017. Before I can properly answer this, I need to ask you, you've been at the last two Texas games. Charlie Strong lost his fifth game. It was not an embarrassment like some of the earlier losses, but they are now, best case scenario, 7-5. and five. What percentage chance do you give that he'll be back next year? I think after losing losing the game the other day, I think it's 50-50. I think, I think they'll win this weekend at Kansas. I'm not convinced that if he beats TCU, they'll, they'll still keep him. Well, that's how I feel, okay? So now ask me the question. Okay. I thought if he had won out, I thought that he had a really, really good chance of keeping it. But after losing, I mean, you're right. It was a close game, and that's a pretty good team they, they, they lost to. But still... I, I think that that gave him some pause. All right, so that informs my answer. If Charlie Strong is 50-50 to be gone from Texas, then I immediately put my chances of Tom Herman being in Texas at 50%. Okay, and then Tom Herman at Oregon. Um, 20. Tom Herman at LSU. 10. So that means Tom Herman at Houston is the other 20%? Yes. Okay. That was really unfair of me, the way, to throw math at you, and it has to be the 100% pie, because I could have said, yeah, then Tom Herman at, at uh, you know, in the NFL or something. I mean, I'm not John King. I can't do complex math on a telestrator on live on national television. There's a lot you're throwing at me. Let's not go into that. The telestrators. I, you could have used John King in the booth at your game the other day. Hey, it was not his fault. It went from 1, 2, 3, 4, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. And for some reason, they put that on the Jumbotron at, at the state. Not everybody was watching the end of the uh, Texas West Virginia games. Now we have to explain what you're talking about. But real quick first, what were your percentages? Uh, on that, pretty close to yours. Um, yeah, I think mine are actually what yours would have been. You had Houston 20 and LSU 10? Yeah, I had so 50% chance he's at Texas, 20% chance he's at Oregon, 20% chance he's still at Houston, 10% chance he's at LSU. That's mostly based on my increasing faith that Orgeron can get the job. What an impressive showing last week. You know, people, all Alabama showed that their offense isn't that great after all, or they're going to have a hangover post-Alabama game, went out and absolutely rolled over Arkansas. Yeah, I mean, because they had, that had been their M.O. the last few years. And, you know, I, I mean, we'd reported this a couple of weeks ago that if he, and this is before the Alabama game, that if he had basically gone 3-1 and one down the stretch, that he was probably going to get the job. And I think short of a stumble, I do think he's probably going to get the job. And I think he's catching a little bit of a break in that the reason I was a little skeptical going into last week, that's a heck of a three-week gauntlet to end the season. Well, they took care of Arkansas. They play a Florida team this week that, this is a crazy stat. After LSU, I think Geis ran for like 240 and Fournette ran for 98, something like that. Arkansas is now the worst rushing defense in the country. And that is despite the fact that Florida only ran for 12 yards on them. That's crazy. 
So I think LSU is a lot better than Florida. And then the only issue after that is it's five-day turnaround at A&M on Thanksgiving, but A&M is struggling, and obviously no Trevor Knight doesn't help. They just lost to Ole Miss starting a true freshman quarterback in his very first game. So, yeah, I, I think there's a better chance he's coming back. I think we can agree Mark Helfrich is not coming back to Oregon. Yeah, I don't think the chances look very strong that he's going to going to survive this. Um, I think we both like Mark Helfrich personally, uh, but they've just really been blown out of so many games. I think it's hard for people to have much optimism going forward. Yeah, you can't keep having these embarrassing losses at home, you know, and you go back to last year, 62-24 to Utah, then Washington comes in there and puts up 70, and I think this one was the most galling because Stanford has not been good on offense this season. They came into that game 120th. In scoring offense, they were averaging below 20 points a game, and they scored 52 before the end of the third quarter. That, to me, was his. If there was any hope he had of coming back, I think it ended on Saturday night. And you're right. He's a great guy. In fact, I used to say to people, you know, like we see him at the event in Phoenix in early May. A lot of the coaches just kind of mingle. They have their families with them. He's almost like he's too normal to be a college football head coach, you know? We're used to college football coaches being wired so differently and so weird. And Nick Saban says he didn't know the election was going on. And um, Gundy's wearing a mullet just for the heck of it and so on and so forth. Helfrich is just a normal guy. And I don't know, maybe that's the problem. Maybe you have to be wired differently to be a successful head coach because it just feels like the whole program is unraveling under him. I agree. I mean, he's. I agree with the part about him just – you know, he's an easygoing guy to be around. I don't cover him every day, and, you, you know, we don't. But it's crazy the turn it's taken. Like I said, they won 33 games in the past three years, but it just feels like the vibe of the program is, is just the bottom's falling out this year. Do you think he ultimately one of his biggest mistakes was hiring Brady Hoke as his defensive coordinator? And I say that because it may be that a different coordinator would not be having any more success, that the recruiting was just that bad on defense the last few years. But if he had gone out and gotten – and I'm not saying he could have, but Dave Aranda or John Chase, somebody like that's a very respected defensive coordinator, and then they had this kind of season, there would be some some cutting some slack. But because Brady Hope got so you know had such a high profile failure at Michigan and had not even been a defensive coordinator uh, at the college level anytime recently, that it just kind of makes it seem like, well, you know, that was a terrible idea for how to fix it. I actually think the issue was beyond that, was before that. And I think the mistake, and it's hindsight, is obviously 2020, but I think the, the biggest mistake was the having Don Pelham run the defense before that. And I think once they they were digging out of a hole this year, and I think I had them as 8-4 and four going into the year, just I thought they had enough skill talent to kind of manage it. But... You look, they were they were terrible on defense last year, and that was with the best defensive player in the conference, DeForest Buckner. You think they're going to be better without DeForest Buckner? It's not like it goes like, beyond DeForest Buckner. They have no linebackers, none. Yeah, and they're they're mediocre in the secondary. Um, you know, it's it's they definitely had missed on a lot of guys in recruiting. I'm not saying they missed on everybody because they did have some good players in the program, certainly on offense, but. Uh, and it's a combination. You have, you're starting four freshman offensive linemen. That's not good when you're starting a freshman quarterback. I mean, I don't know. It's just kind of a little bit of a recipe for disaster, and that's what it's been. If we think he's gone, Halfridge, and then we only give Herman a 20% chance of being the Oregon coach, then who's going to be the Oregon coach? You know, I could see Tom and Herman being in the mix. Like, it wouldn't shock me if, if Oregon said, you know what? Dana Holgerson's having a really good year. He could be coach of the year. I wouldn't mind bringing him and his offense. I'm glad you said that because that's an idea that started to percolate this past weekend, and it actually makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, look, Dana Holgerson's AD, Shane Lyons, has not stepped up at this point to say, hey, we really want you here. Um, the fact that West Virginia is a top-10 team right now is pretty remarkable considering all the players they've lost. And, you know, you got, I've done a couple of their games this year, when you go to a game and it's Texas against West Virginia, and before in warmups you turn and look at both sides, you would not think that's the top ten team and that other team's a five hundred team. Physically, they they are just not the same. It's been a remarkable season for them, and, and I think to me the thing that really stands out is they have managed to buck the norm of these air raid teams that can't play defense to save their lives. They are winning with defense, if anything. I'm going to. 
reason why this is, by the way. So here's the thing with Dana Holgerson. Now, he and Leach are very similar in temperament and personality, kind of, in the way they run the program. But he is very different from, from Leach. He's very different from Cliff Kingsbury in that he does a lot of different things. It's 20 personnel one week. It's 21 personnel. It's 10 personnel. His identity is so multiple and so varied, and I give him credit. I'm not trying to say the other two guys, especially our ego guys, or, or, or throw Sonny Dykes in there as well, but he has figured out what is the best chance I have to win in games. And I think he has juggled his offense appropriately to do that. I mean, they have the receivers where you could sit there and be, be four wide all the time. But I think he has done enough to keep people off balance. And I think he deserves a ton of credit for doing that. I mean, again, not to knock the other guys. I mean, Leach has won eight games in a row at a place where you wouldn't think anybody would go over 500 these days. But what Dana's doing now, I think that's why he's different than all the quote-unquote other air raid guys who are head coaches right now. And like you said, before the season, he was considered to be on the hot seat and was getting no support from his AD. Contract negotiations didn't go anywhere. So I think he would be very open to going somewhere else. Now, he's an unconventional dude, but I suppose Chip Kelly was too, so maybe they'd be okay with that. The other name that immediately comes to mind, somebody's going to get P.J. Fleck this offseason. Is it going to be... A Purdue, or is it going to be somebody higher profile? Because if it is somebody higher profile, right now you would think Oregon would be the, the obvious one. Yeah, I think the, the, the role of the dice with him is you're talking about a guy who's still very, very young, and that is a huge jump to go from a Mac school to a big-time program. We're not talking about like last year, Matt Campbell, who was another well-respected young coach from the, from the Mac. He ended up with Iowa State. You know, it's like you usually don't go from like from a Mac job to a upper tier power five. I mean, Urban Meyer was a really good coach at Bowling Green. He ended up at Utah, which at the time was not in the Pac-12. I mean, it's very rare to see that. I hear what you're saying, but he's also from the beginning been much more of a promoter and a marketer. And he has done a lot more than the typical Mac coach to kind of be an ambassador for the program and, and frankly do a lot of the outward-facing things that I think a college head coach has to do these days. Yeah, no doubt. He has definitely leveraged, you know, social media and the media very well. He's had a really good year. Um, I'm curious to see how it would play out with him wherever he goes or what what decision he's going to make. He may look at it and go, Purdue's not a big enough job for me. Row the boat has become, you know, people mocked it at first, but, like, as they're going on this run and they're 10-0 and and game day's coming to town this week, I'm seeing people use row the boat left and right. Like people are are all in on it now. And if you can, if the head coach at Western Michigan can get a slogan trending, that's pretty impressive. Um, let me ask you about. So we talked about Oregon. We've talked about Texas. We, you know, we obviously focused a lot on the playoff. Is there a story kind of off the radar outside of the playoff? picture that has got your attention right now in college football uh well one is navy uh, i think you know you lose a guy in keenan reynolds who was a top five heisman vote getter you know basically by the end of his career was considered to be the best player to play for navy since roger staubach and here they are even in an even better position than they were a year ago to possibly win the american uh and go to a new well i don't know that they would go to a new year six ball but they'd be in the mix um that stands out to me. That's been a great story this year. What about you? Yeah, I would definitely echo that. I think James Conner is an awesome story. I mean, I referenced him before. Um, and and what Pitt's doing is, is, is intriguing. I feel like there's a lot of very good individual stories that are, that are kind of out there this season. If anything, this year has shown me just how marginalized the group of five has become in the playoff picture. And I'll give you an example. We were talking about the Heisman race just a minute ago, right? And we were literally scrambling for names. Do you ever hear Zach Terrell? No, the only time I ever really, it's when you look at like touchdown interception ratio. 23 to 1. Yeah. He's the number five rated passer. And for people who don't know, he plays for Western Michigan. They've also got a stud, actually two stud receivers. Those guys, I just feel like there was a time when if you were a star player in the MAC, well, heck, Jordan Lynch was a national name. Uh, but I was even thinking back to Byron Leftwich, Chad Pennington, Travis Prentice, Ben Roethlisberger. Like, 
there was a lot of attention on these star players from the other conferences. And now I feel like you're just basically anonymous. You know, I keep pumping out Donnell Pumphrey. I don't know that he's gained any traction nationally. There are actually three really good running backs in the Mountain West. The Mountain West race, by the way, became a lot more eventful over the weekend with the Wyoming UNLV game. And, and now Boise's back in the mix. And I just don't think anybody cares. No, I mean, San Diego State's, uh, what are they, 23 in the country? Uh, yes, and they also have, I think they had the nation's longest win streak until they lost early in the year. So obviously Alabama overtook that and has kept it. But now they've rolled off another nine or ten wins in a row. So uh, they've been one of the most successful programs, you know, group of five programs over the last couple of years. And I don't I would imagine most people haven't even seen them play. Yeah, here's a good stat, by the way, on your Western, Western Michigan quarterback. In the second half, of games, he's completing over 82% of his passes, 10 touchdowns, zero pick. Pretty good. Pretty good. Um, he, <laughs> one reason people didn't see him last week is he's been playing these Tuesday matching games, and last Tuesday obviously was election day. So not many people were paying attention to that. Oh, I'll give you an even more under the radar one. I wrote about it at the end of my Monday column that you hate the name of. Um, Eastern Michigan, remember how bad they were for however long? I feel like they've been terrible for as long as I've been covering the sport. You know, 1-11, 2-10. They just got bowl eligible for the first time since 1995. I'm going to do something really bad, Stu. I'm going to ask you, do you know the name of their head coach? Yeah, Chris Creighton. Okay. All right, good. Come good on, too. give me a little credit. But I would be lying if I said I've watched an Eastern Michigan game, so it's not like I'm going to play high and mighty like I've been following Eastern Michigan. I just noticed that they got bowl eligible. In fact, they haven't actually played in a bowl game since the, since 1987. Do you know what bowl they played in? 1987? It's uh, a bowl that doesn't uh, exist anymore. That could be a bunch of them, right? It was the California Bowl, which later became known as the California Raisin Bowl. Wow. Uh, who did they play in that game? San Jose State. I'm trying to guess who would have been like on even the San Jose State team. If you can name a player from San Jose State in 1987 without looking on Google... That would be. I was going to guess Steve Clarkson because he was there, but he was there in the early '80s. Uh, it's Gerald Wilhite. He's a running back for the Broncos. That would be my guess, but I don't know if he was there at that time. All right. Well, there's one thing. There was one thread we kind of left open there, and that's what happened in your Texas uh, West Virginia broadcast. The hit of the avocado room on Saturday, to say the least. So Texas throws a hail mary to try to you know last ditch last right, second. They walk it back for you. Okay, walk really it back. Real. So Texas is trying to rally to come back in the final minute. They're moving the football down the field. They get it inside the 30 uh, with, I believe, five seconds left. You want my perspective? You want me to just tell the story? Do you want me to tell you what's going on? Hey, you were there. You point? tell the story. So I'm supposed to be the, you know, I'm the sideline person, which means I don't know who I'm going to be interviewing, but I know I have to have questions ready because we're going right to that person. And so you're trying to think in your head, okay, you know, what, what's going how's this going to unfold here? And I basically Texas is going to throw into the end zone. And as they're about to, to, to snap the ball, uh, one of the safeties for West Virginia is sprinting to get off the field, but doesn't, he gets caught about four steps from the, from the sideline. And so I am thinking while my producer, wow, they got caught with 12 men on the field and they're going to get another snap from, like, the 12-yard line or something. Instead, you know, the, the ball is thrown. It's deflected out, of, you know, deflected out of the end zone. So, you know, West Virginia people, players, and, st and staff are on the field. But, you, you know, you kind of have the feeling they all did that, shit, we might have got caught with 12 men on the field just because the guy was running off the field. And unbeknownst to my colleagues, Joe Davis, the play-by-play -play guy, and Brady Quinn, the, uh, the analyst, you know, they're doing what they're doing. They're looking at the telestrator. For some reason, the University of Texas put the, bit, the t Brady's telestrator on the big screen. So now all of a sudden, like I hear the broadcast in my ear throughout the game. So I hear what they're saying, and I look up, and I'm like, uh-oh, that might be what we're showing on TV. And so Brady is counting, and he – the telestrator, for some reason, which is automated, Brady pushes a button. It's not like Brady is pushing the each key goes. You know, he's pushing the number seven to get that's the seventh seventh defender. He just, it, for some reason, the telestrator went one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. So he had he had twelve. He had eleven circles, but there was the number twelve was up there. As soon as he got added and the last number went up, you heard a loud roar in the stands, and 
it was like, oh boy, game on. Actually, though, um, the te- there was a technical error with the Telestrator. Never mind that it shouldn't have been on the Jumbotron in the first place. So what the officials had to do was they had already counted up that there were only 11 guys on the field. But then when they heard the Brady thing, they actually went back and recounted and found out, yes, indeed, there were only 11. West Virginia wins the game. And Joe Davis says, handled it perfectly, he says, uh, first he said, you know, oh, no, you got the hopes of 100,000 people up. And then he said, you should probably delete your Twitter. Yeah. Um, hey, look, it's live television. People expect everything to be perfect at all the time. And if one thing goes wrong, it gets called out. And that's just the nature of it. And there's no avoiding it. But um, live television is hard. Yeah, we were we were in the car. So it was uh, two of the guys who work with our crew up in the front. And I was Brady's wife actually came into Austin for the weekend. And so we were in the back. And Joe had already was heading to the airport. And... SB Nation had a story that basically had a screen grab of what, you know, Brady had said, and it showed there was no number five or no number six. And um, so he kind of like passed the phone over. And I just think the aspect of, wait, why was that on the big screen? Because usually when you're at games, they try not to show controversial replays, you know, as a policy. So, you know, there was a couple of replays in the game that they didn't, you know, they didn't show. on. And don't they usually show their own version of it? I don't feel like they usually show the TV broadcast. No, they don't. So that made it more interesting, and I don't know. It's such a blur usually when you're in the middle of the games and everything um, and how it unfolds. I think that those last minute of a game, last minute of a half, are just craziness from a production standpoint and everything that goes into it. And I actually you know, never really appreciated that until the last year when I started you know, doing, doing sideline. But, uh, you know, like, like I give the officials credit. If they got the call right, and it wasn't, you know, I think it probably surprised a lot of people in West Virginia. And as Brady said, he was like, wow, they, you know, defeated that play with basically 10 men on the field. You know, it really floors me. And, you know, no, I have not been part of a, the game broadcast like you have, but there have been a few games on Fox where I would come and do the something pregame. And so they include me on the email with the crew sheet. Give me a ballpark. How many people are on a crew if you include everybody? It's a lot because there's a lot of people in the crew we work with and I, this isn't the way for big NFL crews, but in the crews we have, so there's probably. I'm talking know, camera operators. Yeah, uh, people in the truck. You know. Yeah. You know, we're in the double digits of the regulars, but then you add in the local people who work on a telecast who you don't see. Maybe you know, I've done a couple of Texas Tech games, so I've seen you know them because they're in Lubbock. But those people, the support people, you know, it's like triple the number. And it's kind of like the traveling road show. But, you know, that's one of the things that's different, I feel like, than, you know, what, what we did, you know, what I did for so long, which is as a sports writer, you know, you know, you guys are my buddies and I see you guys on the road. Um, but you're kind of like, you know, kind of a one man show or one person show, whereas that you really do are part of more of a team as it as it plays out. So, um, by the way, so I had two games this week. I'm going to bring this up. Um, at the end of, I did Utah, Arizona State, Utah had 22 tackles for loss in that game and 11 sacks. Hunter Dimmick had five, five sacks, six and a half tackles for loss. So with a minute left, we decided we're going to do Hunter Dimmick as the post-game interview. And, you know, I, I didn't get a chance to watch the pregame show because I got my own stuff to do, but I guess Wanstat had, had said he was going to be the impact player of the game, the guy to keep an eye on. So... They, the producer said to me, he's like, yeah, ask a question about Coach Wanstead for to Hunter Dimmick. And I'm thinking in the back of my head, I'm like, oh, God, I hope Hunter Dimmick actually knows who Dave Wanstead even is. You know? And so I think I stressed the word old too much when I, when I said it. And, man, they gave him a hard time about it. And he, when you put him on the phone the other day, I think that's what he was not happy about. So I'm apologizing. I watched the interview. I do not think Hunter Dimmick knew who Coach Wanstead was. But I did think it was amusing that you asked him, how does it feel when an old coach like that gets all mushy about, uh, uh, how did you put it, about a pass rusher, basically? Look, in fairness to Hunter, we got him, like, and he was all set to go sing the alma mater. And he was like, hey, can I go? And my producer was like, no, you got to wait for, like, three minutes or whatever. We basically worked it out with uh, with Utah SID and everything like that. So he did not want to be there. And that was a crazy set. The, the second half of that game or the fourth quarter of that game, I've never seen, I think Arizona state's offensive line just gave up. I mean, it was, it was insane. They, what, what was the final numbers on the sacks and the tackles for loss? 
11, 11 sacks, two tackles for loss. 22 tackles for loss, and I feel like half of those came in the fourth quarter. Yeah, and it wasn't just him. I mean, when another another guy has three and a half sacks and five tackles for loss, and he's not even the headline guy on the defense. I mean, you know, Utah can do that. It was like Joe Williams, who was, you know, at one point coming out of at a halftime, Todd Graham was like, well, we shut down the run. We got to get better on, uh, you know, we had some coverage busts. And then, sure enough, Joe Williams had like 100 yards in the third quarter alone. And um, it was an impressive play, impressive showing by, by the youth, I'll say that. And where will you be this week? Uh, I will be in Fort Worth, you know, around your TCU Horn Frogs as they play Oklahoma State. I think we'll have an entertaining game. You know, I feel like the Big 12 is pretty much always an entertaining kind of shootout. I would think this will be another one of those. And while you were talking, I pulled up the uh, from the Kansas State Stanford game I was I was at that FS1 showed. They have the list of the production crew. There are easily at least fifty names on this list, probably more. That's how many uh, people it takes to put on a game. And this was a Friday night game. And I believe most of them were there by Tuesday. Yep, Tuesday was the stadium walkthrough. All of that to produce a three and a half hour game. Yeah, they also have like a call time is basically when you need to be there by, and so. We had a 11 o'clock kick Saturday morning for Texas, uh, West Virginia, and a lot of our crew had to be there by 5 a.m. Yikes. Yeah. That's heavy coming off the double. So. That's the stuff that goes on behind the scenes that you never see. Um, so we've already got a guest lined up for Wednesday's podcast that we're excited about. And, of course, as always, we will answer your emails. So send those to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And as always, if you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We'll see you next time. <laughs>